Tonight's teaching, again, picks up where our first lesson left off, and it's in Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 14 through 26. Really unusual section here. Here we go. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, and when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fail. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusts and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is that he's worse off than the first. This is God's word. This is a really unique text, really unique. And for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it, it for... People in America in 2021, it smacks us right in the face with the reality of uh, the presence of demons and spiritual entities in the world. And that seems so foreign to people who are born and raised in the United States. Uh, Number two, not only that, it talks about a demon that has the power to disable somebody. So it has the power to actually make them a mute. And he might have been mute and deaf, but nonetheless, he's, he's like handicapping this individual. That's unique. Number three, it furthers our understanding of the unique dynamics between Jesus and the religious establishment of the day and what they're trying to, how they're trying to discredit him. And four and five are that Jesus teaches two really brief, short parables at the end that are really bizarre and really potentially confusing. The first one is about an armed guard of a house who gets overpowered by an invader. And the second of the parables is about a man who drives a demon out of his life, but the demon returns eventually stronger than before. Now, let's just acknowledge what this is, okay? Um, I usually don't do this right up front, but I'm going to tell you exactly where I'm going with the three points at the end, because I think whenever you culturally listen to something that is so foreign to you, you've got to be as simple and straightforward as possible. Number one, this text acknowledges the presence of the spiritual realm and spiritual entities on earth, which we have to alert ourselves to. Number two, that's not really what this text is about. It acknowledges that, but that's not what it's about. This text really is about making positive changes in your life. Now, what do I mean by that? You have an individual here at the end of the text who uh, seemingly his life gets better and he cleans up his life and his house gets in order, but eventually the demon comes back with more demons and his attempt to solve his problems leads to more problems in the long run. How do you make changes in such a way that it doesn't actually create further complications in your life is really what the text is about. And the third thing is Jesus saying the only way you can make 
changes in such a way, you can experience transformation in a way that wasn't leave you off, doesn't leave you worse off in the long run, is if I am at the center of those changes and that transformation in your life. Okay? So let's, let's walk through the text here, point at a time. First of all, in the opening verse, we're told Jesus rebukes a demon. And again, he drives out the demon from a, uh, a, a mute-making demon from a man. And this just it seems so, so odd to us. We've never seen anything like this. We've never heard of anybody quite like this. And so how, what are we supposed to make of this? Most of the time when you and I associate things with like demonic possession, we immediately assume that uh, Hollywood is maybe our best influence on it. And so whether it's paranormal activity or whether it is a little girl with her head spinning around, we think, okay, that's, that's what demonic activity, that's what exorcism is. Well, let's, let's make it a little bit more technical than that. I got a definition for you from the Dictionary of New Religious Movements, and it says this. It says, exorcism is the casting out of demons or evil spirits in a ritual designed to free the evil influences. In the Orthodox Church, exorcism is, a practice, is practiced prior to baptism as a result of rationalism in the 19th century, belief in evil spirits was largely discarded by most Western churches. But in recent years, there has been a revival of the practice and an increasing demand for services of exorcist by troubled individuals. Two really important points embedded in there. Number one, what it says is the Christian church for like 2,000 years, uh, especially Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and you guessed it, Lutherans, have all had long liturgical traditions of exorcism. In fact, some of you would be shocked to find out that the earlier, uh, for instance, Lutheran baptismal rites involved something called insufflation and exsufflation. This has been around for about 2,000 years. That is a breathing practice that is designed to ward off evil spirits and shun away demonic powers. Okay? This has been a thing that churches have used for a long time. Uh, number two, the vast majority of people in world history have acknowledged the presence of a spiritual realm. The reason that you and I generally don't to the same degree is because you and I were not born in a vacuum. We don't just think in a vacuum, but you were born in a specific cultural context. And post-enlightenment in the modern Western world we live in a society that by and large has uh, cornered demonic activity into a children's holiday in October that is characterized by dressing up in costumes and gaining activity. Why? Because we look at it as so silly and so non-relevant. And yet, the moment you and I come to the conclusion that naturalism, rationalism, and modernism can't provide sufficient answers for the way that we perceive the world today, that's the moment that you open up to the idea of the supernatural and you open up your worldview to something more than just simplistic, cold, hard naturalism. Um, I, I probably should just, you know, right off the bat, I don't always do this either, just betray what my personal belief is. So I, I'm, gonna, I'm saying this in part because I know that not everybody sitting in the room is necessarily at the exact same place on this. I do absolutely 100% personally believe in a personal Satan demonic being and other personal spirit beatings that are fallen angels, just as I believe in a personal God and personal angels that he guards and commands to watch over us. 
I know that everybody in the room isn't necessarily in the exact same spot on that, but what I want to do tonight is I want to challenge you in a couple different ways. I want to challenge you to, number one, see Jesus believes in them. The Bible certainly teaches them. Number two, I want to challenge you to understand that the vast majority of people in world history have absolutely believed in the spiritual realm. And number three, I want to challenge you to understand that if you generally perceive the world through a naturalistic lens, that you think there's a naturalistic explanation for everything, I want to challenge you on that and say, can naturalism sufficiently explain the evil that exists in this world? For that matter, can naturalism even explain itself, like the origin of the universe? Can a natural physical universe come about through natural physical processes? I think it's self-defeating, but even more than that, I think it doesn't explain the way that we perceive the universe today. Um, and we're largely this the product of what we grew up in. In other words, can cold science, biological chemistry, and genetic imperfections adequately explain the problems that we see in the world? Or, in the same way that the heavens declare the glory of God, do, does the fallenness of this world explain and declare the presence of demonic forces? See what I'm saying? If, by observing the intelligence that we see in nature, if that declares God's existence and intelligence and involvement in the world, does the fallenness that we see amongst mankind, can that not at least partially be explained by the presence of the demonic spiritual realm here on earth? Um, okay, so that's just Jesus rebukes a demon. Interestingly enough, Jesus isn't just some kind of spiritual mystic. He's also a pragmatist. He doesn't just rebuke demons, he also rebukes bad logic. I love this about Jesus. He's always more nuanced than we initially, he's more nuanced than us and he's more nuanced than we tend to give him credit for. And um, essentially what's happening here is after Jesus has driven out a demon, the Jewish leaders start to criticize him. Well, they want different things from him at this point. They want to criticize him, but they want to get different things out of him. So some of the people say, give us a sign from heaven. You know, in or, if you're going to prove to us that you actually are a prophet of God, give us a sign from heaven. And Jesus never, he never dances when other people demand that he dance. Why? There's very obvious reasons for this. If he dances when other people tell him to dance, who's in control? They are. If that's the case, then they're the Lord, not him. And he doesn't enable that poor kind of spiritual thinking. So he never just operates and does miracles on demand like that. The second thing, though, is the Jewish leaders, many of them are saying, well, it's by the power of Beelzebub that he's driving out these demons. Now, what does that mean? Beelzebub and Beelzebul, you run across these names sometimes in your, um, in your Bibles, in the Gospels. Uh, essentially what it is, Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. Beelzebul means something like Lord of, of uh, the Dwelling, but they're very closely related, and they both come from the ancient Philistine god Baal Zebub, which means in then Lord of the Flies. And it has something to do, Lord of the Flies, it has something to do with flies are, uh, they, they feast on excrement and they spread disease and they're very clearly pests. And essentially by first century Palestine, what Beelzebub meant to the Jewish mind is it's anybody who is, it's like a pejorative term for anybody who's doing anything spiritually that doesn't respect them. So they look at Jesus' teaching, they look at Jesus' power, and they're saying, ah, it's by the power of Beelzebub that he would do. It's dirty, demonic, non-establishment you know, types of practices. That's the issue. Now, Jesus, he rebukes them. And again, he rebukes them calmly, rationally, logically. How so? He says three things. Number one, 
you say that I'm driving out the demons by the power of Beelzebub. That doesn't make any sense because a house divided against itself will fall. Why would I drive out demons by the power of a higher demon? Why would demons try to fight with one another like that? That doesn't make any sense, logically. Number two, he also admits some of your own Jewish leaders are also performing exorcisms and driving out demons. If you're accusing me, according to your logic, of driving out demons only by the power of demonic activity, why doesn't that same accusation, it's self-incriminating, why doesn't that work against you? Why aren't your leaders driving out demons by the power of demons? So he, he tells them, number one, it doesn't make sense. Number two, it's self-incriminating your statement. And number three, here's the other thing, you're acknowledging that I'm powerful. So very clearly what you're t saying about me is not an admission, this isn't a coincidence, it's an admission that I have some kind of power over the spiritual realm here. In fact, Jesus' last comment about driving out demons, he says, I don't know if you caught this, he says, by the finger of God. That is a very clear, every commentator will say this, it's a very clear allusion to what Moses did in front of Pharaoh in Egypt. Why? Because, you know, we studied this back in October, November. Moses standing before Pharaoh. And remember, Moses comes before Pharaoh, says, let my people go. And God gives him several miracles to perform so that he can substantiate that he is from the Lord God of Israel. He performs the miracles, but remember what happens amongst the Egyptians? Pharaoh has some of his magicians perform the same miracles. That's really interesting. But after the, the, the plagues continue to proceed, at some point in time, the Egyptian magicians turn to Pharaoh and they're like, we have no idea how he's doing this. This is, this is way beyond anything that we can do. And they say, at that moment, they say, this must be the finger of God. Now, a couple different interesting things are suggested there. Number one, it suggests that human beings do have the capacity to tap into whatever you want to call it, demonic power that is a power that goes beyond human power. Uh, traditionally, churches have, have associated this with things like superhuman strength, uh, incredible ability and access to languages that aren't natively yours, uh, incredible access to knowledge that you otherwise shouldn't have. But there is such a thing, and it was certainly that, that was the case back in Egypt. And yet what they're also acknowledging is that the Lord God of Israel is clearly so far superior to any of the spiritual forces that exist in this world to such an extent that God's little finger can subdue all the spiritual forces of the world. So Jesus rebukes a demon. Jesus also rebukes really bad logic. And then he tells two parables. And the first of the parables is about an armed guard at a house becoming overpowered. And it's super confusing because we almost always portray an armed guard as uh, like a noble uh, person of integrity, right? As a good guy. That's not the case here. Jesus is equivocating the, the armed guard with the guy that he also refers to in the Gospels as the prince of this world, which is also not supposed to be a positive term. But he's saying Satan has power. Satan has control. Satan has dominion. Satan, we studied this back in, in Luke 4 when Jesus was tested out in the wilderness. Remember what we said? This is, it's such a provocative text because it exposes the way a lot of Christians think about what should happen in this world. And uh, Satan at that moment takes Jesus up to the high point on a mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And remember what he says? He says, I will give you authority and dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth if you would just simply bow down and worship me. Now, never mind this whole bow down and worship me fact. 
the, the interesting thing, obviously Jesus refuses, but what doesn't Jesus say? Jesus does not say at that moment that Satan doesn't have the authority to hand over the power of the kingdoms of earth. Why? Because he does have that authority. Why? Because he's in charge. That's scary for us to think about. The reality, the reality that this world is largely his. Um, have you ever noticed that the greatest human success stories, the best humans that you've ever met, their life ends the exact same way that the most despicable and deplorable human beings that you've ever heard of met? They all end in death. Why? Because this world is largely his. The devil gets this win. We get eternity. He gets this kingdom. We get the kingdom. And Jesus is telling us that he has come to attack Satan in his house. And he's overpowered him and he's plundered the goods. Guess who that is? That's you and me. We're the spoils of Jesus' cosmic victory over Satan. Okay? Jesus is the even stronger man who overpowers the guard and prince of this world. So he gives us one parable, and then he gives us another one that's perhaps the most bizarre and confusing sounding thing in the whole deal. The last thing he says there in verses 24 to 26 is this parable about a man who has a demon inside of him. But he casts out the demon somehow. He doesn't tell us how he does it. But he drives out the demon. He cleans up his house. He cleans up his life. He gets his act together. He goes through the programs. He cleans it all out. And the demon goes, all we're told is he goes and he travels through arid places. And that just means like waterless, lifeless wasteland. Because Satan loves destruction. Satan loves chaos. Remember, we've talked about this before, uh, even when we studied in Genesis, that, that God is a God who creates order. Satan is a destructive force uh, that creates chaos, which is further evidence that Satan is the prince of this, uh, prince of this world, is, is just the entropy of life. Everything in this planet is going which direction? It's going into chaos, not into order naturally, right? That's because this is a fallen world. It's just, he's the prince of this world. But this demon is going through arid places looking for devastation, but nonetheless, the demon needs a house. He needs a vessel in which to dwell. When he can't find one, he decides to return home to the original vessel that he dwelled in, and he's surprised to find that this individual is still spiritually vacuous. He's still vacant. He's cleaned up his house, he's cleaned up his life, but he's still, there's no, there's no spirit actually living there. And he goes and he invites seven other demons and they decide, let's have a party, and they go and jump into him. Now, <laughs> we'll get to this in a second, what this all actually means. This is, this is incredible. But at the very least, what this has to mean, this has to mean that the person who has overcome problems in their life nonetheless remains highly vulnerable if they're not occupied by the Spirit of God. Um, Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish minister in the 19th century. And he wrote a great little book. I think you can read the whole thing for free online. It's only like 30 pages, really short, but it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he, what he means, just in general, 
is you can only drive out the presence of occupying demonic forces in your life. You can only drive out the bad stuff, not merely by playing defense, but by having your heart consumed by the love of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to try to get rid of bad, addictive idols and demons in your life. You have, your heart has to be captured. Your mind and your imagination has to be captured by the love of Christ, who is bigger than all of those other potential loves. Now, okay, what does this mean? I'm going to have to end it there because I want to jump into the lessons and applications. First of all, I already tipped my hand on where we're going with these. The presence of spiritual forces in your life and to explain this, I'm just going to sort of deconstruct a quote from a guy who is probably, Dr. Michael Heiser is probably in the top three or four English-speaking Hebrew scholars on planet Earth. And he was the head of the Logos uh, Bible software group for a while, and he's, he's taught at all sorts of universities. And, but it, anyways, his, his most famous book probably is a, a book called The Unseen Realm. And sometimes people ask if they, like, do I recommend books? This one is so long and so technical, I probably wouldn't. He actually writes one that is the same content, but a little bit easier, more accessible. It's called Supernatural. That one I probably would recommend. But I'm going to give you a quote here from the unseen realm, and this will explain what I'm talking about. Okay, he says here, there are two basic reasons why non-charismatics, charismatics are, that's a portion of Christianity, if you don't know, Charisma, uh, charismatics, Pentecostals, consist of probably 15, 20% of uh, Christians around the world believe, especially in things like the spiritual, special spiritual outpouring, like speaking in tongues and miraculous healing and that kind of stuff. He says, there are two basic reasons why non-charismatics, that's everybody else, tend to close the door on the supernatural world. One is their suspicion that charismatic practices are detached from sound exegesis of Scripture. And as a biblical scholar, it's easy for me to agree with that suspicion. I and mean, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if, if you're Pentecostal or charismatic and you believe that if God has something really important to say to you, that he will just say it directly to you, that might lead you to invest less in studying the Bible and taking that seriously, which is part of the reason why there aren't a whole lot of specific Bible scholars whose stuff is read around the world who come out of charismatic camps. And again, we can argue with that, and I'm not trying to, these are his words, not mine, but that's the argument that he's making, okay? He says, but don't get too self-congratulatory. And this is a good, good line here too. He said, the other reason is less self-congratulatory. The believing church is bending under the weight of its own rationalism, a modern worldview that would be foreign to biblical writers. Since we live in the scientific age, we are prone to think that these kinds of experiences are actually emotional misinterpretations of events, or worse, something treatable with the right medication. And in any individual case, that might be so. But the truth is that our modern evangelical subculture has trained us to think that our theology precludes any experience of the unseen world. Now, again, kind of a mouthful. Here's what he's saying. People today have a tendency to look at the Bible and think, we are enlightened today. They are pre-scientific. And what they did back then is they just said, oh, that's a demon, and that problem's a demon, and that person's got a problem, it's a demon. When in reality, we now know they had schizophrenia, and they had Tourette's, and they had some other kind of disorder. Now, we're going to debunk that here in just a second, because Jesus debunks that. But that's what he's saying. A lot of modern Christians tend to think that way. He goes on, and this is the last part. He concludes, 
My contention is that if our theology really derives from the biblical text, we must reconsider our selective supernaturalism and recover a biblical theology of the unseen world. Again, here's a summary of what he's saying. 90% of us Christians were raised in churches that while we acknowledged the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and other miracles of Jesus and other miracles uh, throughout the Bible, many of us are nonetheless grossly unaware of the spiritual forces that exist in the world like angels and demons to such an extent that we almost never think about it. That's partially because we consider ourselves too scientific. That's partially because we think of ancient peoples as too primitive. But see, if you only wear glasses that allow you to see things in a science laboratory, then you're going to be blind to all the other true stuff that exists outside of a scientific laboratory. And your worldview is going to be a little bit simplistic. However, only when you start to understand that naturalism cannot explain the complexities that exist in a very fallen world, and you open the door to supernaturalism, can you have a more nuanced worldview? Now let's just look at Jesus, for example, because this is really interesting. Uh, if you think that Jesus just looked at all the problems that he faced in life as, well, that's the devil, and that's the devil, and that's the devil. This is why Luke's gospel is so helpful. Luke, remember, uh, remember what Luke did as, as a profession? He was a medical doctor, okay? He actually uses medical terminology that very clearly indicates when Jesus is healing a physical problem, and he uses different terminology when Jesus is addressing a psychological problem, and he uses still different terminology when Jesus, for instance, with this man here, was experiencing a spiritual problem like demonic possession. In other words, in the Gospels, Jesus very clearly differentiates between those different types of problems. He doesn't have one-size-fits-all uh, type of solution. And I guess what I would encourage you here, and this is the last thing I'm going to say on this particular part, your understanding of life, um, your understanding of the way that the world operates. If you've never ever prayed that God would send his angels to watch over you, if you've never ever prayed that God would give you the strength to fight off the demonic forces that Jesus believes are real in the world, this can open up a lot for you and can tap into a significant amount of strength. So I want, if you become aware of the presence of Satan, the presence of demonic entities, as well as, of course, the presence of God and the presence of his angels in your life, that will bring into focus your worldview so that it's that much more in touch with the truth, okay? That's all I want to do is raise some people's, some of us don't have any awareness, raise the awareness a little bit of the spiritual realm tonight. The second thing, what I think this text is really about, and I already touched on this, is how to properly change. If you perceive every problem in your life as a nail, then the solution to every problem in your life is to swing a hammer. The real problem that comes up is if you misdiagnose a problem as a nail, but you nonetheless continue to swing your hammer, you're going to break all sorts of things in your life. That's exactly what this text is about. Jesus is saying there is a way to solve problems that actually creates deeper problems. There is a way to drive out demons that actually invites more demons. Let me just give you a couple examples of this, and I think you'll, it'll make sense. Um, physically. Physically, how do we treat cancer? Well, 
in 2021, we typically treat cancer with uh, some kind of combination of chemo and radiation and um, surgery and you know medications like that. And it's interesting when you have a loved one who, who dies from cancer, is contracted with cancer, you start studying up on this stuff and you realize how complex it is that different forms of cancer require different combinations of those treatments. And this is one of the reasons why you need experts because actually what a lot of those treatments do is they just kill living cells. They literally kill you and kill living cells inside of you. And therefore you had better be pretty certain when you administer some of those treatments that you know what you're doing because what you don't wanna do is you don't wanna get rid of a micro problem by creating a macro problem. It's entirely possible to drive out one demon in one respect, but create more demons. Um, it's entire, so a lot of people don't just die of cancer, they die of complications attached to cancer treatment. You gotta be very careful that you don't create bigger problems in an attempt to small, uh, solve one problem. Psychologically, let me give you another one. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, although, because I think it'd probably be all of the guys in this room. How many of you guys, when you were little, were told to stop crying when you were crying for something, and you were told to stop crying because don't be a girl? Thank you for the hand, Micah. I was Aaron, thank you for, like, I'm even saying don't raise it, but the guys are still testifying to their experience growing up. And I appreciate, I think all of us were. Um, number one, how, how does that condition a male's mind to be condescending towards women moving forward? Number two, what a terrible way to process complex emotions. Just repress it. Just stuff it deep down inside and pretend, hope it just goes away and never, you know what? You can't just bury garbage. You know that? I literally know that because last year the EPA came out to my house because Glendale was built a hundred years ago on a landfill. And we dealt, Milwaukee dealt with its garbage by just stuffing all the garbage underneath, uh, underneath Glendale. And now it's like starting to seep up and we've got this toxic levels of lead seeping out in my backyard and in my front yard. And last year they came out, it took months, they did the remediation over the whole thing and it's all solved and it only like shaved maybe two, three years off my life. So it's not a huge deal. But you can't just bury garbage and expect it to, to go away and never affect you. Physically or emotionally, if you tell young men to process their don't be a girl, stuff that emotion. What you, you end up with a bunch of guys who have stuffed emotions, not processed them correctly, and inevitably, especially in males, the way that ends up coming out is in anger. Now, uh, do you wonder why men are incarcerated at a nine to one rate to women? You know what that is? It's explosive anger. For that matter, you wonder why men uh, are, uh, commit suicide at a four or five to one rate to women. You know what that is? That's implosive anger. Maybe if guys weren't shamed from expressing emotions as children, they'd become more emotionally well-adjusted as adults. You can toughen up little boys by telling them to not be girls and stop crying, but you might ruin them in the process. So you had better be very careful that as you're trying to drive away one demon, you don't invite in seven more demons along the way. Okay. Um, this is every aspect of life. The way you manage your stress, the way all of us struggle with self-medicating. Um, so you have anxiety in your life, and what do you do? We all have our different, you know, 
Maybe, maybe it's through a couple extra drinks. Maybe it's through eating a little bit too much. Maybe it's through pornography. Maybe it's through um, an interesting one in recent years, like the last 10, 20 years, has been how many American Christians fully embrace and adopt what I would just consider Eastern religious practices to uh, deal with anxiety to relief. Now, here's the thing. I don't doubt that it could relieve anxiety. All, I'm, all I want people to think through is, are you in addressing one micro problem, and I'm not trying to be dismissive of problems, but in addressing one problem, are you potentially creating a macro problem and inviting in more demons? Or socially, last week uh, we talked about the issue of things like um, minimum wage. Of cl- clearly, of course, we all want to live in a society where if somebody works hard, they can provide adequately for their family. But what solutions? See, there's... There's so many potential solutions. If one solution creates bigger problems in the long run, is it really a good thing? That's the type, you can't fall into simplistic thinking. Jesus is telling us this is absolutely what this text is about. There are many ways to solve a problem that actually create more problems. And what happens in this text? You have a guy who has a demon and he gets his act together and he cleans up his life and he drives the demon away And the demon comes back and invites more demons to come on in. And the guy, see, it's it's entirely possible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and to get your life together and to overcome negative circumstances, but to become so full of yourself and so self-aggrandizing that you not only become a jerk, but you actually forfeit your soul. Because what Jesus is saying here is, look, somebody's got to dwell there. Something has got to dwell there. Some affection, some idol, some spirit has to dwell there. You can't remain spiritually neutral. You can't remain spiritually uh, vacant. Somebody has to go there. And what Jesus is suggesting is there's various ways to clean up your life and clean up your house, but there is only one way to do it, which will actually leave you better off than before. And so... The only way to do it is one that glorifies God, that invites Jesus deeper in to be the solution to the problem. And that alone, that alone can lead people to transform in such a way that doesn't bring other demons in the long run. Um, let's just get to the last point here. Someone stronger. Here's, see, here's the big idea is you can't, something in life is going to possess you. We talk about demonic possession. Something's going to possess you. You're going to be possessed by... So, in the same way we've said before that it's impossible not to worship because you're created by God to be a worshiping entity. So you're going to worship something. It's just a matter of who or what you end up worshiping. In the same way, you're going to be possessed. You have to be possessed. The only capacity you get is to express some kind of desire in who or what will end up possessing you. And... What Jesus is teaching here is the spirit of any other occupant will, could possibly help you with your problems by creating other, stronger, deeper problems. The only one who can deal with your deepest problem is the one who actually faced your deepest problem for you at the cross in your place for your sins. Jesus is the real stronger man who came and overpowered Satan. He slayed the dragon, he chained the dragon that he called the prince of this world, and he did it counterintuitively, 
by falling on the sword himself in our place for our sins. For our sins. But because he did it, you and I get the eternal kingdom. And because he did it, you and I can trust him and seek him moving forward because the logic is, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Jesus' solutions are never as simple as pills or seven steps of empowerment. And I'm not, by the way, I am not knocking either pills or empowering self-help. All I'm saying, Jesus' solution is never as simple as pills or empowering steps. Jesus' solutions always involve repentance. They always involve forgiveness. They always involve the powerful grace of God in actual transformation that won't ever usher in more demons, but ushers in a spirit who overpowers demons. Remember what Chalmers called it? The expulsive power of a new affection. Unless you're possessed by Jesus, you're going to be possessed by something else. And so what we do as God's children is we humbly welcome him in daily. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we are your vessels. Dwell in us mightily by your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.